Well, that's the Funky Friday at Five theme, which um, is letting all of you folks out there in internet land or um, whatever they're calling it these days, the information superhighway land or uh, the World Wide Web or, or whatever it is, that this is the theme song. This is Funky Friday at Five, and this is uh, the first edition, first episode of All About Aesthetics. And on that note, um, I'm going to do another version. Well, it's not a version of what I just played, but one of the things in aesthetics, of course, is comparison, contrast, you know, and, and difference and similarity and things like that. So I'm going to see what happens. A little tiny miniature piece um, and seeing what, what, what we're going to have. So we know, of course, yeah, that's like that, right? But. do all those things those three three uh improvisations on the funky friday at five and um um and from different eras etc and so i'm gonna um start off let's see what i'm doing here gotta go over to comfortable chair here um kind of arrange my things i don't know really i have some ideas about aesthetics of course and this series will be um an introduction to, um, you know, some um, uh, observations on aesthetics, and so for the for the for the as a placeholder for that word concept aesthetics, I'm just going to say 
um, human constructions and creations um, that make us feel things. And so it's connected to undergoing experiences of all kinds. And so we start off with what I'm wearing. Okay, this. It's tie. I'm going to just um, disrobe a little bit here because I kind of... Um, Um, this is the very first tie I ever bought, which means, among other things, it's uh, from 1984. And so this is um, Countess Mara tie. And basically, this is a representation of a representation, a copy of a copy. This is based on illustrations by the great Lawrence Fellows of how the well-heeled dressed in the 30s. And this is a really good reproduction on, on, on the silk of these gentlemen and this kind of, so this is um, the aesthetics of these illustrations and the aesthetics of what these illustrations are representing or depicting um, refer to a very um, specific mode of dress that only really existed for a short time in the West, right? Isn't that interesting? And if you go over here, I have a lot of I have a lot of stuff here, so you have to bear with me. Um, what are we doing here? Ah, here we go. If you want to see some original Lawrence Fellows, and you know Lawrence Fellows would do illustrations for Esquire magazine or what was then version of Gentleman's Quarterly Apparel Arts. And I have this book also from 1987 um, with some of um, some pretty good reproductions. Lawrence Fellows. This is Brown in Town, talking about wearing brown and brown. Um, but I, I have to reiterate that this mode of dress that I have on now, I have been dressing this way 40. Um, I started at age 14, 15. I'm 56 now. That's a lot of years. And I've seen a lot of enormous permutations, transformations, transfigurations in dress. Not my own necessarily, of course, but... Um, you know, um, the world around me. And so, um, you know, that's one of the examples of how aesthetics and aesthetics are, again, human creations, human constructions um, that um, make the world feel a certain way and make us in the world feel a certain way. So we might dislike what I'm wearing now intensely because we might have private or collective negative associations with it, possibly. Or we may think it's glamorous or beautiful or somewhere in between all sorts of responses. And then a um, big part, of course, of aesthetics is works of art. Now, I'm defining art. Bear with me here because I kind of follow Camille Pally a little bit here. And she's very inclusive. 
because she includes, you know, billboards and record album covers and porno and television, uh, movies on television. And, you know, I guess uh, graphic design, commercial design, a lot of things that are really more for use rather than um, a more complex, like a Moby Dick or a Proust or um, Tarkovsky's Nostalgia or Andrei Rublev, you know, works of art that aim at something a little more, um, well, I want to say complex or, or lofty or, or, or just have, have more going on in them. And they're not merely commercial. And there's a whole spectrum, there's many things in between. And those are all works of art. So I don't use the word art. I don't, I don't use the word aesthetics as it's often used, but I try to let me, let me know where I'm coming from. So we, before we're gonna have all these hours in the future, uh, where we're where I'm coming out of. So um, I use art as a description, not as an evaluation. It's a it's script, description. So I played music. That's like those are objects of music, instrumental music. And you know, I've got the design on this cup. You know, those are art objects. And I also use the word objects to include performance, things that are not objects, dance, um, oration. Pre preachers, you know, actors, monologues, you know, movies, TV. There's a lot there. So I thought it would be really interesting, I think, to get at this subject of aesthetics, open up aesthetics with Susan Sontag as our guide. I say partly, not entirely. I mean, I am a Sontagian, but not totally, right? And so I thought it'd be interesting because uh, she has this essay against interpretation and um, on style, and she tackles head on the very things we're gonna be talking about. So I'm gonna read from her text, uh, very close reading, uh, sentence by sentence, and I'm gonna bring things from my life. Like for example, these shoes I'm wearing. Very simple black shoes. One of the very few pairs of shoes I own that's bespoke. And I have documentation of me having the shoes made in Florence, Italy in 1994. And this is the sh me, look at me, I was 28. Let's see here. Now the shoes I'm wearing are what, the ones I wore to, but that's him bent over in Florence, measuring my foot. And unfortunately, Stefano Brema passed, I think from cancer, I think maybe 12 years ago. And of course, his family carries on that tradition. And that was quite an experience in 94, being in Italy, having those made. Um, and so those are, um, you know, again, similar to architecture, those are objects that, um, are very utilitarian, you know, like a shoe is a utilitarian thing. It's to cover your feet and all the rest of it and something to walk in so you don't cut your foot up, feet on glass or something. You don't, you know, you don't, uh, um, but, but, you know, uh, the notion of something utilitarian can be a work of beauty and that this Stefano Bremer guy in Italy makes shoes of beauty. Um, and he made, I'm talking about a long time ago, the early 90s when, uh, they were uh, 
far less expensive than, than, than they would be now, of course. Um, that's something to think about. And so we have all these things involving one of my loves, men's fashion. And I just want to talk about it just a little bit. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. And later on in the show, this episode, I'm going to change clothes for fun and reflect upon what it means to wear different kinds of clothes or clothes in different styles, you know? And uh, so I have a lot of things over here. Um, I um, This book, this is the first edition of a guest interpretation. Look at the aesthetics of this book cover. Here's the back. This is Susan Sontag when she was just a kid, right? Or whatever, I don't know, 20s or something, I don't know. Long time ago, 1964. But this book cover, these colors and these shades is an entire sensibility of the 50s and 60s. I mean, not just those two decades, but in 40s. And, and it's a sensibility that we can come up with adjectives for. Um, it's tough because it, it, it is subjective, but um, I don't want to say austere, but tasteful, um, clean. The colors are, are, you know, the lines of the colors, um, shape. There's a sense of form. There's a sense of proportion, and uh, um, that's a that's a that's a um, we're getting into the realm of style because that's a style, right? So everything, as Susan Sontag says in her book on essay on style, there are no stylist works of art. There are only works of art in more or less complex styles. There's always a style there. Always a style given. And there's nothing in life that isn't aesthetic. That is, there's nothing in life that doesn't make you feel something by virtue of how a thing is done, whether it's performed, whether it's a material object, whether it's a movement. Those are human creations that make us feel things and feel very different things from era to era. Sometimes the same thing will make you feel one thing in 2008 and make you feel very differently in 2024. Um, leaving totally aside or notwithstanding the question of whether you should feel differently about it, because after all, it is the same fixed thing. But that's one example, right? So um, people would say, well, you've changed or we've changed. And so we can't same river twice, you know? And so all of these things, and so I thought it would be interesting to read from Sontag's text. And um, if you looked at my introduction for um, this series, I talked about red grooms. And I have, of course, you saw this image. That's me pretending to be asleep. I know it looks like I'm not really sleeping, but red grooms was, is a popular artist or pop quote unquote artist. Red grooms is very different than the, not Sontag, but different than the book, this book cover. Totally different sensibility. In Red Grooms, in the Whitney Museum, he recreated the city of Chicago. He would recreate Times Square with paper mache and, and sculpture. And there's a good, there's a picture I forgot. I just didn't really, there's, there's me, Ma, here's Trilly. 
That's one of Red Groom's creations. But notice, you know, the buildings and the windows and me looking at it. He's building in whole environments, you know, almost like Matthew Barney many years later. And so that's an aesthetics aesthetic that doesn't push aside the world. It brings the world in, brings Chicago in. It brings the street people of Chicago in. It brings, you know, uh, uh, the textures and, the, you know, it brings the subway. He wants to recreate the sub, a subway riders. So Red Grooms, his very name, right? Red Grooms is a kind of a fun, relatable, popular thing going on with him. And audiences or viewers or whatever else want to refer to it, um, undergo experiences on the basis of his preferences and what he puts a spotlight on. And so before we get to Sontag's text, I'm going to play a little excerpt, the first eight minutes of a film from 1973 on my little laptop here called Painter's Painting. And the reason why I'm playing this is that Red Grooms, this is Emil D'Antonio, and he was a extremely left-wing Marxist slash anarchist committed filmmaker. Um, he made tons of collage films about the Kennedy assassination and about uh, labor struggles. And he's one considered one of the great documentarians. His film on Joseph McCarthy, Point of Order, is a classic. Um, he even more, most notoriously made a movie with the cooperation of the Weathermen. Uh, and that movie's called Underground. But Emil D'Antonio was a had had a dual personality. He as, a, as in addition to being an activist, was an esthete. And the two were sort of not really in harmony, but he did make one film that was non-political called Painter's Painting. And in this film, you get to see de Kooning talking about his life. And, and, and so I'm gonna play a little bit of this. And you know, again, while I'm doing this, I'm gonna go change a little bit. I'm gonna put on clothing that I never wear. A style of clothing that you'll never see me cut dead in except for this this uh, episode so i gotta queue up this movie and, and um so i apologize i didn't have the tv because i'm just trying to move things around I'm trying to you know trying to um, um and so again this film was made in 73 but the the world is described as the very rarefied fine art world of the Mark Rothko's and the de Kooning's and the Franz Klein's and the Barrett Newman's, those kinds of folks. And those are the kinds of folks Susan Sontag was hanging out with and writing about and friends with. So this kind of fits a little better text in that sense. So I hope you're able to see this. I don't know what, what we got here. I got a, um, it's, it's far from ideal, but we'll, we'll just um, press play and, the problem of American painting had been a problem of subject matter. Painting kept getting entangled in the contradictions of America itself. We made portraits of ourselves when we had no idea who we were. We tried to find garden landscapes that we were destroying as fast as we could paint them. We painted Indians as fast as we could kill them. And during the greatest technological jump in history, we painted ourselves as a bunch of fiddling rustics. By the time we became 
social realists, we knew that American themes were not going to lead to a great national art. Not only because the themes themselves were hopelessly duplicitous, but because the forms we used to embody them had become hopelessly obsolete. Against the consistent attack of Mondrian and Picasso, we had only an art of half-truths, lacking all conviction. The best artists began to yield rather than kick against the pricks. And it is exactly at this moment when we finally abandon the hopeless constraint to create a national art that we succeed for the first time in doing just that, by resolving a problem forced on painting by the history of French art we create for the first time a national art of genuine magnitude. And if one finally had to say what it was that made American art great, it was that American painters took hold of the issue of abstract art with a freedom they could get from no other subject matter, and finally made high art out of it. Well, I think one of the big problems in American art is that, is that it is American. I mean, what is American? How are, can you be an artist, not a provincial, but still American, after all, you are here. Artists like de Kooning and Newman saw this with immense sophistication and moved into what I would call a cosmopolitan plane. When Kooning first came to the country, late 20s, early 30s, there was practically no American art world. Wanted services that didn't exist. And Kooning came over here as a European, a trained European artist, was caught in the, uh, the bind that all the other American moderns were trapped in. Well, I felt uh, a certain depression over there. I mean, uh, I felt uh, caught. A small nation. I went to Belgium and worked for a while. And then um, the American movies always being the Paramount movies and all those movies, Warner Brothers movies. And uh, it seemed to be a very light place. Of course, I didn't know that the movies were all taken in California, but everything seemed to be very light and bright and happy, you know. Particularly about the comedians, you know, like uh, Harold Lloyd and Charlie Chaplin, Tom Mix, and uh, you know me. And um, I always felt like when I come to America, even when I was a boy. And his first pictures were abstractions more or less geometric, more or less hard edge, more or less bright colors. And from there he moved into a series of men and um, poetic, sort of tattered, romantic, poor looking men, tragic, haunted men. Certainly there was an idea of the depression and of the bread lines and of the hobos and of the bums and of the tragedy of the unemployed in these pictures. Roosevelt thought we should decorate all public buildings, which was a marvelous idea, and we should hire these artists by the week, and which he did, $23.90. And uh, he hired a lot of artists, and you have to have some background to be on it. And we were all trained in school. We, I mean, there weren't that many artists. It was a very lonely profession at the time. We decorated airports, public schools, terminals, whatever you have. That was a function of adorning the public buildings. I felt the issue in those years was, what can a painter do? Okay. The problem of the subject became very clear to me. 
as the crucial thing in painting. That's a little piece of art history. Um, and you know, it's, it's rare to see de Kooning talk about his own filmmaking, right? And so this is, uh, this is where we are, and this is my change of clothes. And this is my t-shirt, I think, from 78. I mean, it doesn't really fit as well, of course, but, but it's close, you know, and, and anyhow. This is a different mode of dress than a uniform of the, the jacket, the odd, the dress coat or the suit and the tie and the shirt. The mode of dress I wore earlier, which is my own style of clothing, is based on vertical line, like going like this. That's why the trousers are cut high and not low. And that's why the, it's not skin tight because skin tight clothing, you know, and it's complicated, but you know, a lot of people dress like this or some form of it. They may have sayings and they may have words, but this is another mode of dress. It's a more economical, perhaps, mode of dress. Um, it's certainly uh, it's certainly one that, um, and we can we have here the same. We have Ms. Farrah Fawcett on both, and so we can. Now it's time to dive into Susan Sontag. Um, um, I'm trying to think of how to proceed, think out loud. I'm thinking, well, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to... Am I going to read every sentence or every... Well, you know, I don't know. I really don't. I don't know really what... Um, It's a little cold in here, so I figured. Uh, <laughs> um, Now, she opens up her essay, A Guest Interpretation, um, with guess who? The very man we just listened to talk about his depression and his struggles, de Kooning. So it opens up, it says, context is a glimpse of something, an encounter like a flash. It's very tiny, very tiny content. De Kooning. It is only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. The mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. Oscar Wilde, more, more second quotes, more famous. So Oscar Wilde is saying that visible things are mysterious, that we know less about visible things, or that we that we uh, that there's more mystery in the visible. 
And I think he's also saying that we overlook the visible because we're obsessed with the invisible. That is meaning. And so Oscar Wilde is part of that tradition of artists who question our thinking meaning is so deeply important, I guess, maybe. I don't know. But let's just jump into this. It gets interpretation. Now, Susan Sontag interprets things. We're into this whole podcast. I mean, I'm interpreting things in this very episode. So am I really against it? What is it? What is it she's against? Does she mean a particular kind of interpretation? Well, we'll see. I don't know. This is one of the greatest essays ever written. I mean, this is up there with Abraham Lincoln's address. And it's that good. It's up. It's just, uh, I mean, it's, I don't even know. Yeah. Emerson, it's certainly up there with all the Emerson essays, the second series. She says, the earliest experience of art must have been that it was incantatory, incantatory, magical. Art was an instrument of ritual. CF, the paintings in the caves at Amita, Lacau, Neo, La Pichette, etc. The earliest theory of art, that of the Greek philosophers, proposed that art was mimesis, imitation of reality. Right? So as you're saying the earliest theory is this mimetic thing. And mimesis comes out of Plato. If you've done your philosophical uh, education, uh, Plato is uh, mimetic. It is at this point that the peculiar question of the value of art arose. For the mimetic theory, by its very terms, challenges art to justify itself. Plato, who proposed the theory, seems to have done so in order to rule that the value of art is dubious. Since he considered ordinary material things as themselves mimetic objects, imitations of transcendent forms or structures, even the best painting of a bed would be only an imitation of an imitation. Right? An imitation of a poster of a woman, of a movie star, right? For Plato, art is neither particularly useful. The painting of a bed is no good to sleep on. Can't sleep on a painting, right? Nor in the strict sense true. And Aristotle's arguments in defense of art do not really challenge Plato's view that all art is an elaborate trump oil and therefore a lie. But he does dispute Plato's idea that art is useless. Lie or no, art has a certain value according to Aristotle because it is a form of therapy. Now, you know, it's funny. Reading this now, we're all certain, I mean, not me because I don't agree with Aristotle, but most contemporary people are, without knowing or not, kind of Aristotelian. They're, you know, Aristotle loved use and he loved goals. He loved to say, what is this thing for? What is a human for? Or what is the, uh, what's the, what's it, what's it, what's it good for? What's it, you know, what's the, uh, and that's very Aristotelian. That's a, that's a frame of mind. And of course, artist therapy is very popular now, of course, right? So, um, art is useful after all, Aristotle counters, 
medicinally useful in that it arouses and emerges dangerous emotions. In Plato and Aristotle, the mimetic theory of art goes hand in hand with the assumption that art is always figurative. But advocates of the mimetic theory need not close their eyes to decorative and abstract art. The fallacy that art is necessarily a realism can be modified or scrapped without ever moving outside the problems delimited by the mimetic theory. The fact is all Western consciousness, consciousness of and reflection upon art have remained within the confines staked out by the Greek theory of art as mimesis or representation. It is through this theory that art as such, above and beyond given works of art, becomes problematic in need of defense. And it is the defense of art which gives birth to the odd vision by which something we have learned to call form is separated off from something we have learned to call content and to the well-intentioned move which makes content essential and form accessory. So another synonym for her phrase form as accessory is decoration. Um, is to take form as incidental. Often people today talk about this in terms of the heart of something. And so we're right back to Oscar Wilde's contrarian epigram, you know, um, the visible and the invisible. We're interested in the, the invisible heart. And folks like Oscar Wilde and Susan Sontag, and in part your host, are, are, uh, aren't really buying that, really, in some degree. So, I'm going to skip around her essay. I'm not going to, I'm going to skip to it to number two here, just to do it. None of us can ever retrieve that innocence before all theory when art knew no need to justify itself, when one did not ask of a work of art what it said because one knew or thought one knew what it did. From now to the end of consciousness, we are stuck with the task of defending art. We can only quarrel with one or another means of defense. Indeed, we have an obligation to overthrow any means of defending and justifying art, which becomes particularly obtuse or onerous or insensitive to contemporary needs and practice. Though the actual developments in many arts may seem to be leading us away from the idea that a work of art is primarily its content, the idea still exerts an extraordinary hegemony. I want to suggest that this is because the idea is not perpetuated in the guise of a certain way of encountering works of art thoroughly ingrained among most people who take any of the art seriously. What the overemphasis on the idea of content entails is the perennial, never consummated project of interpretation. And conversely, it is the habit of approaching works of art in order to interpret them that sustains the fancy that there really is such a thing as the content of a work of art. 
Of course, I don't mean interpretation in the broadest sense, right? The sense in which Nietzsche rightly says, there are no facts, only interpretations. Very famous quote by Nietzsche. There are no facts, only interpretations. It's, a, it's funny. By interpretation, I mean here a conscious act of the mind, which illustrates a certain code, code certain rules of interpretation. So it's kind of like um, Morse code or kind of like a, you know, it's a kind of this means that. This means that. Thus the Stoics, to accord with their view that the gods had to be moral, allegorized away the rude features of Zeus and his boisterous clan in Homer's epics. What Homer really designated by the adultery of Zeus with Leto, they explained, was the union between power and wisdom. So that's what that's really about, again, from these people in the 60s that wrote about this way. It's about power and wisdom. It's not about a god, and it's not about somebody, you know, violating somebody in their own family, or it's not about any of these very ordinary things like a love affair or, 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 or anything on the stuff. It's about not. It's not about anything on the surface. It's got to be this symbolic code, and this is very close to Tarkovsky's complaint that his films are not symbolic; they're metaphorical. And I think Tarkovsky had read his Sontag probably. Even maybe even as it was banned by the Soviets, probably. But I'm sure he, I'm sure that he found a copy of this because this came out while he was making Andrei Rublev, and I, you know, it's it, there's a connection there. Um. So she says there's two styles of interpretation. The old style of interpretation was insistent, but respectful. It erected another meaning on top of the literal one. So you got to erect something on top of the surface, on top of what's visible. So that's kind of a backwards geometry because what's on top is what's underneath. You're sort of, right? Um, the modern style of interpretation, and, and she means here her folks in the 60s, the Freudians and the Marxists and all, all the um, those kind of folks that have not gone anywhere, obviously, if, you, if you're been looking around, it's, it's they're stuck. We're still there. Um, the modern style of interpretation excavates, and as it excavates, destroys. It digs behind the text to find a subtext, which is the true one. So we got the text, and then we got this real thing. So we're back to Oscar Wilde's binary of real visible unreal visible unreal you know mystery invisible these kinds of these kinds of interesting and this is not a um, this essay is not really um she's not telling really anybody what to think really i mean she is but she isn't she's kind of responding to a climate that has only grown in influence since she wrote this and it's kind of interesting because it's really um an exquisite thing to read a text that's warning about something and finding that she lost and her opponents more or less won, basically, which is interesting, right? I mean, if we're going to put it that way. In other words, she's saying, you know, too much interpretation, too much theorizing, just enjoy the work of art, just experience it. And she's saying that that's where it's really at. And that, that really, that side lost. 
And for many reasons, because it's, you know, maybe for education, it's, you know, it's easier to teach something in an excavation kind of mode or in kind of expulsory kind of mode, you know. And so there's a lot here, and I don't know how far I want to go, how far I want to proceed. Um, she talks about Stanley Kowalski, says, It is indeed the modern way of understanding something and is applied to works of every quality. Thus in the notes that Elia Kazan published on the production of A Streetcar Named Desire, it, became, it becomes clear that in order to direct the play, Kazan had to discover that Stanley Kowalski represented the sensual and vengeful barbarism that was engulfing our culture, while Blanche Dubois was Western civilization, poetry, delicate apparel, dim lighting, refined feelings and all, all, though a little the worse for wear to be sure. Tennessee Williams' forceful psychological melodrama now becomes intelligible. It was about something, about, well, the decline of Western civilization. Apparently, were to go on being a play about a handsome brute named Stanley Kowalski and a faded Manji Bell named Blanche Dubois, it would not be manageable. I guess she's saying we people wouldn't like the play as much or something, you know, if you just stuck to the characters, you know. I don't know. I mean, these these are these are these are just kind of kind of um and then she says there's this movement in art to flee from interpretation, or as kind of a uh, artists see this going on, they're like, well, what can we do? What they can do, art can become parody. Or it may become abstract, or it may become merely decorative. She puts that in quotes, merely, merely decorative. Or it may become non-art. Abstract painting is the attempt to have, in the ordinary sense, no content. Since there is no content, there could be no interpretation. Pop art works by the opposite means to the same result, using a content so blatant, so what it is, it too ends by being uninterpretable. So, you know, you have on one hand, you, need, you have a commercial logo, your Warhol, you know, she's talking about Warhol. Campbell Soup Can is so loaded with meaning because everybody's seen it, that it undoes itself and works to the same effect as abstraction. So that's one sense actually that Warhol Soup Can is a little bit like Mark Rothko, you know, a little bit like some of the paintings we saw in this movie, if like, you know, Imagine a canvas of just that, those colors, you know, on a wall and not a person or not a horse or, you know, not a figure of something, you know. So um, it's just fun to go and look at things, you know, and, and it's fun really to, I think, to feel and experience things and let, you know, the experience be our guide of what it is that's going on, you know. So, oh, these things are heavy. So every, you know, record album covers. So, of course, you know, I've got lots of 70s record album covers. So I've got things like Larry, Larry Kresick's album cover from Lenny White here, Venusian Summer. You have this um, 
curvy girl and this mermaid and this some kind of afro and this this kind of um I don't know with the some kind of a um kind of like a customized van art kind of illustration. Um, and that's a very, um, you don't see albums like that really much anymore. That's kind of, that's kind of a, kind of a wild, kind of a wildness to that. Or you have something like this, which is um, from the fifties and that's just, well, here's Holly Golightly. This is Audrey Hepburn and Mancini did the music and that's a steam and that's, we're just sort of more or less informing you of this is a scene shot from the film of this film, right? Or another shot of a person. This is Arturo Toscadini. And this is what he's like. This is the conductor of these nine Beethoven symphonies. And it's heavy and it's R.C. Victor. This album is from the 40s, of course. Or we could have this. On record of uh, this is the first production of Death of Salesman, Thomas Mitchell, and you kind of have a still of the of the of the of the world where he salesman in a suitcase, you know. But think about the fact that we went these are all record albums from different eras. So a record album, record albums could have been, you think about it, could have been anything. And they were, they were anything and everything, you know, just like anything else, you know, it could be anything and everything, whatever an arrow wants or an individual wants or what people want to experience or not. And um, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. Um So she's talking to her fellow 60s people. I don't mean 60s people in sensibility or style. I don't mean like the hippies or intellectuals or students. I mean, people that happen to be around, you know, living in 64. She says, today is such a time when the project of interpretation is largely reactionary, stifling, like the fumes of the automobile and of heavy industry, which befoul the urban atmosphere the effusion of interpretation of art today poisons our sensibilities. In a culture whose already classical dilemma is the hypertrophy of the intellect at the expense of energy and sensual capability, interpretation is the revenge of the intellect upon art. So it's again, it's that antinomy. It's like, you know, there's art, which is, you know, feeling and sound and music. And then there's this thing called the intellect. And it's really interesting to think about Susan Sontag is an intellectual. But she's saying this intellect, intellect, intellect is, a, is a kind of a, um, a vice that's wielded to defend, wielded because it's afraid of art, basically. It's fear-based. It's basically, I'm going to analyze it so I can gain power over it so it won't trouble my sleep anymore or trouble my waking moments, you know, if indeed it is troubling. Now there are works of art that, again, it's not always troubling, but maybe it's troubling or could be troubling or maybe it uh, in all sorts of ways. Um, and I think, you know, 
there's a lot more I can say, and there's a lot to be covered, but I have future episodes in mind. I thought it'd be nice to start off with little Susan Sontag. And um, and I think uh, it's an introduction. I think I'm going to talk about some things. And um, tomorrow's veterans. I think it's Veterans Day, or is it today? It's tomorrow. And of course, I'm going to be watching some couple films. Personal favorites of mine are going to be watching Cutter's Way, Jeff Bridges and John Hurd, 1982. Highly recommend that if you have not seen it. Cutter's Way. I'm going to be watching Who Will Stop the Rain with Nick Nolte. Um, maybe Coming Home. It depends on how late at night I want. How Ashby Picture, of course, Voight and John Voight and Jane Fonda and um, the great Bruce Stern. And, you know, that's what I'll be watching for Veterans Day. Um, and maybe some surprises on myself that I'll play on myself. So I hope you have a very good weekend, a decent weekend, healthy weekend, uh, maybe even a good or a great weekend if it comes to that. And um, we will next week start with my book lunch, my series of these books on love. That's what they are, and that's what we'll be doing. So uh, I look forward to seeing you for that, and I, I hope you have enjoyed or got something out of this. Thank you.